welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. So today I'm having another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation, this time with a wonderful colleague of mine, Imogen Moore, uh, who also works at the University of Bristol with me. Um, So Imogen is Associate Professor in Law, um, and she's really lead on education and innovation and development. And Imogen and I have just collaborated and written a blog post for Advanced HE ahead of their symposium. So I think by the time we air this, it will have happened. Um, But um, we I wanted to have a conversation with Imogen to discuss all the topics we discuss in our blog post. So thank you so much for coming here today. It's an absolute pleasure as always, Fabienne. Yes. we have a lot of those conversations, right? So it's, this time is just that it's recorded. That's right. I'll try not to get uh, get anxious. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, let's start with you and you know, like sort of set, you know, setting the picture for listeners. You know what you do at the university and and why you're interested in well-being. Sure, sure. So, I mean, to a great extent, my role is sort of typical academic with an education focus. So I do an awful lot of designing, writing, delivering courses, writing and marking assessments and all that kind of thing. And then I'm also involved in a more sort of strategic and practical work around developing teaching support and supporting innovation and development in teaching. So I've done a lot of work in sort of creating mentoring and support networks and modeling new course structures and that sort of thing. And then I spend a lot of time thinking and writing and talking about educational developments in particular and just sort of pondering how to improve things. And so it's that side of things really that has got me into this whole kind of thing of, of well-being in that I've got a very broad range of interests on the educational side of things. Um, I'm always encouraged to specialise, but I've never been much good at that because I'm interested in everything. And so I've kind of, and I I tell myself it's, you know, a broad, rich perspective rather than I'm a a jack of all trades and master of none. But so I've kind of done stuff with assessment and feedback, uh, done a lot of work on transition and collaborating with someone on that at the moment, authentic learning. And what I've seen in all of those is that really well-being underpins every aspect of that student experience of learning of education and higher education in particular and as over the years I've spent in academia and they've been quite a few years um, I've seen that kind of well-being issue really develop um, into to what we can't ignore it is a problem and and that interplay between learning and well-being I think is critical and we've moved beyond the point of well-being something being something sort of added on and added extra and it's got to be something we look at um, in the curriculum as a whole and in the institution as a whole yes and this is where 
there's a lot of similarities in our thinking, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I recently said to a friend, it feels like it used to be a tiny stone in my shoe that was really niggling, but I could live with <laughs> to like a big stone now that I, I have to get out and I've got to do something about. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably out of your shoe. You're going to trip over it now, Fabian. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's there, right? Um, and you've mentioned what I love about, you know, what you've described and what you've you've done as part of your role around education, innovation and development is that as academics, as, and, you know, obviously in, for us in higher education, but I think it's true of my friends in secondary school and in primary school, as educators and teachers, we care deeply about, you know, how we, how our students do and their well-being. Um, yeah. would, you, would you agree with that? Because I think it's sometimes it's portrayed as we don't somehow, you know, as, as teachers or academics, we don't really care about their well-being, but we yeah. do, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's that old image, isn't it, of the academic being the researcher in the ivory tower and, and students uh, are just something that come and go and maybe they're interested, maybe they're not, but it's 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 that's not their prime concern. But I think actually that's not true for the vast majority. Probably all academics care about their students. And, and, and actually for a, a huge number of us, the, the education, the learning, the developing of knowledge and expertise is the reason why we love academia. I love my discipline. I love the law and I love resolving and critiquing legal problems, but you know, that wouldn't be enough for me. What I actually love about the law is, is sharing that and watching my students gain that understanding. So, you know, I think those in academia care deeply about their students and want their students to achieve what they're capable of achieving. And that can't be done without that appreciation of well-being issues that underpin all of it. Yes, because obviously we know that if we're not well, if we're stressed, then we're less likely to learn, for example, that will impede our ability to concentrate. Um, I was saying this week has been a little bit of a bad hair week for me uh, personally because of the home learning with work and everything else. Um, and, and I've really noticed that I've struggled to concentrate, for example, as a result of the feeling or experiencing more stress. So um, I, I think yeah. that's right. I think that sort of sense of being overwhelmed is has a big impact. And, and I think possibly we don't give enough credence to that with our student body um, that because we are so familiar with academia and so familiar with our expectations and processes that possibly we don't appreciate that it can actually be quite overwhelming for, for students, particularly joining the institu institution, particularly that transition point, but actually throughout and the various transitions through. And I think if we think about it in our own terms of, of how we feel when everything gets too much, when we feel overwhelmed, it might be easier to understand that experience of students and therefore have a think about how we can help to uh, take students through those points um, and support students through those points and, and thereby sort of regain that ability to function, to learn and, and to empathise with one another. Yes, 
And so that leads nicely onto the notion of embedding well-being in the mm. curriculum that we've been working on. Um, so I shall we start with that, with that definition, because this notion of embedding and embedding well-being in the curriculum, shall we talk about what we see it or what we think it is or it's not? Um, so, for example, for me, it's not sending people to do yoga and meditation um, or, or, you know, giving them lists of um, well-being uh, links, hyperlinks that they can go and consult, right? Now, for me, that's not embedding well-being. Um, what about you? Yeah, no, I think it's a good place to start, isn't it? Because I think our thinking on well-being within sort of the institution and the higher education system more generally is, is very much started with our interest in, in embedding well-being from the student perspective and you're absolutely right it's I, I think you know there is absolutely a place for that kind of added on well-being support the the ad hoc provision the response to particular crises and things of course there's a place for that and I think largely actually universities are doing that quite well now it's taken some time but you know we're getting there but I think that embedding of the well-being in the curriculum is that greater understanding of well firstly not creating systems that actually make people ill <laughs> because that, that should really be a first a first point but then thinking about how actually we can embed those support systems embed a way of thinking embed a way of learning um, and treating one another within the systems and within the curriculum uh, to provide a, a, a more well environment to actually nurture um, individuals' ability to, to, to support their own well-being. Mm, and I think that's it, the system, right? Because so let, let's go to what we, we started with talking about. We care about our students yeah. and we care about their well-being and we want to do, them to do well academically and also to enjoy their time at university. Um, but the other thing we've written in our blog is that actually staff well-being is equally as important. You know, it's not more important, but it's equally is important. Yeah. And it hasn't really been talked about or looked at a lot as it no and I, I feel actually almost a bit hypocritical in coming to it so forcefully at this point because I think possibly I was as guilty as anyone at overlooking staff well-being even overlooking my own well-being and seeing that as um irrelevant to the student experience and that my focus as you said we are we care about our students my focus was therefore on student well-being let's sort student well-being because that's our primary responsibility once we've got that sorted then we can turn to our own welfare and our work has really sort of brought home to us that that actually isn't a feasible approach and that looking at staff well-being isn't about selfishness it's not even about saying look after us so we can look after students, although that's an important aspect. It's actually recognizing that interconnectivity in that the very things we might want to embed to support student well-being are not possible without looking after the staff well-being. In other words, they simply cannot exist separately or you cannot um, 
well, that's at least our supposition that you cannot achieve student well-being in, in a lasting sense um, if you're not also having regard to the to the wider system to staff well-being and, and how things are functioning more generally yeah absolutely yes and I think for me that's something that I started talking about when I wrote how to um, the flourishing students where I was really I became quite you know quite uh, aware of like Senge's work on systems thinking and then Bronfenbrenner's work and you know and, and the fact that to some extent I think that focus that you were talking about that I also was focused on which is you know um, focus on the students well-being so that felt very much like the image I have is the image of an engine so tweak one part of the engine cause effect and then you're sorted and then it'll, the engine will rev better and everybody will be happy um, but very clearly what what I'm seeing is that all the the positives and what we are doing to help students is actually increasing a lot of uh, of the workload for staff or you know a lot of the um the demand i guess on, on on academics is increasing i see it in my colleagues who are in primary and secondary school so you know, we had to transform our teaching to go online last year during the first lockdown right a lot of my friends have had to do that with you know, lockdown 3.0 um, so they're experiencing the stress in primary and secondary that I guess we experienced in the first lockdown yeah yeah so I mean do you do you agree with that do you also think that um, in effect by focusing solely on the on the student well-being we have and I want to use inadvertently so yeah. we didn't realize that that's what would what the because it's a live system, what the impact would be. But to me, it yeah. feels that we have inadvertently created, created another problem yes. in the system. Yeah, and I would agree with you. I, it is inadvertence. I don't believe for a minute there's any malice in this or any conscious decision to squeeze academics until you know they become ill themselves or leave the profession or whatever. I, I can't see that any coherent policy would, would have that as a, as a route. So it is this, this sense that well-being sort of presented as a growing crisis and it needed to be resolved. And, and I think for many of us, you know, we are problem solvers. We, we look for what's going wrong and, and we look for a solution and we look for the, the simplest solution. And we may not have time if we're dealing in that crisis mode to think about what the consequences of that is. But that, and we mentioned in the blog, I know, but it, it just really simple examples of, of little things that we might think are really simple to improve student well-being for example being much more flexible with deadlines um, and um, providing a lot more academic and personal support and things they're all great but they need resourcing um, if you move deadlines and the marking then comes to the point where the, the staff have got other commitments what happens it, it's it, the staff either suffer or, or it doesn't get done and everybody's unhappy if you say we need more personal support for students that's great but that time that emotional energy has to come from somewhere and again that's something else that it's kind of left to just pick up out of space that's not there so it, i'm absolutely convinced it's inadvertent and, and it's entirely understandable but i think now's the time we come and actually look at what's happened look at what we've created 
we need to stop and think and, and have a much more systemic approach. So when we can see a problem, not just thinking how might we solve this problem, but also what will be the consequence of solving it in that way? And, and can we actually do something about it or do we need to take a different approach? Yes, and a lot of the, so, so let, let's now look at that systemic approach and sort of looking at, you know, all the parts in the system and how do we how do we create well-being for everybody mm. um and a lot of people when i talk to them they just say to me you know, it's pie in the sky it's ridiculous you you know i talk about my the podcast called flourishing education so people say to me you'll never get it i don't even know you know why you're doing this um I'm quite a positive person, so I just, <laughs> I just think, well, yeah, I, I believe in it, so I think it is possible. Um, but, but for you, what would be the first step to, to changing, moving to a, a systemic approach? I think, I think what probably underpins it all is a greater willingness to embrace honesty. And, and that sounds rather concerning because it sounds as if I'm suggesting there's dishonesty involved. And I'm not suggesting that for a minute. Um, I don't think anybody sets out deliberately to present the wrong impressions or to be dishonest. But I think there is a sense in which we're not sufficiently understanding of where our students are coming from so I think we're not sufficiently engaging with what they need to know and why they need to know it. So honesty at that sort of micro level, but also honesty in terms of the things we might inadvertently, I don't know, we can't really inadvertently choose, which is what I was going to say, the things we choose not to say or the things we choose not to engage with and thereby allow students to have misunderstandings. And... An example I would give is this idea of our sometimes ever increasing um, student numbers. Okay, so we would never lie to students about the numbers of students we have on a course or the numbers of students that are in a, in a, in a, a class. And, and that would be true of any institution, always completely upfront about those things. So there's no dishonesty involved in that. And I'm not one of those people that would say it's dishonest to suggest that you can have a good education experience with large numbers on a cohort. I don't think that's true. I think you can have a good education experience with large numbers. But where I think the need for honesty comes on that example is that what it's not possible to have is the same educational experience for those large cohorts as it would be for a small cohort. And the risk is that so far as students have an understanding of what they're coming into, they may well have an understanding that is based on the idea of small groups, individual attention, lots of space in a library, lots of opportunities to go to, to things that aren't oversubscribed. And by not being open and honest in ensuring they have that full picture of this is what we're doing, this is how we do it, and this is the experience you will have on this programme. We are setting everybody up for discontent because the expectations are just so misaligned and it's no one's fault as such, it's just that misunderstanding. And so I think it's that, 
that sort of honesty with all parties about what things are, what things can be and how things can be achieved and the limits of what can be achieved that are critical. But it's high risk. It is high risk because in our current world, being honest is often used against us because the person that stands up and says, actually, this is how it is, will be the one that turns up in the newspaper with the headlines. And in, in a marketized education system, that is a dangerous position to be in. So I'm not suggesting even honesty is easy, but I think it's absolutely critical if we are to have a well and flourishing education system. Yes, I agree. And I think, you know, I would add honesty and clarity. So I think one of the things that is not openly talked about is the things you, you mentioned and allude to that are beyond us and beyond <laughs> no, what we can do or even an institution can do. So having honest conversations whereby, you know, young people arrive at university and they are the product of a schooling system yeah. um, and we haven't really addressed that anywhere to me it's not really been addressed and I think that is partly you know you were talking about transitions I really think that from looking at students from you know doing the flourishing students and you know coming back to HE after nine years I really think that part of the issue with our students when they arrive is that they, they encounter a massive culture shock yes. because in HE we are still the majority of us are still saying no we are not going to um have the same approach as in secondary school where you know you you're an empty vessel and I'm going to fill you up with my knowledge and I'm the sage on the stage and all those things that sadly a lot of of our schooling system you know from from earlier years all the way to sort of um you know sixth form is focused on and again, it's not, a, you know, uh, to, all, to all the people who are teachers and are working in those uh, settings, it's not a criticism of you. It's, it's, it's unfortunately part of the system, you know, that, but I think that that is really important that we talk about it, that we talk about the marketization of education, of the, you know, when I arrived in the UK, 97, Blair, you know, that all that government education, education, education. Yes, great. Of course, everybody, you know, if we can give opportunities for people to go to university and gain a degree, absolutely. But like you said, at what cost? And yeah. I wonder if that's something that maybe needs to be put out there as well. I think, again, that, that sort of greater understanding of, of the difference from school to university is, is really important. And I mean, on the one hand, you know, it'd be easy to say, well, why, why are things different? We knew no more about going to university when we were um, students than the, the current um, cohort, probably rather less because we didn't have the, well, I didn't have the internet or anywhere like that to look. Um, but things are different because the cohort is different. The experience is different. I think the current generation is, is much 
less resigned to the uncertainty that we had to deal with because we couldn't just look things up and our education was different and we are in a bizarre situation where the very means by which most universities select their students select the ones to say you are going to do well on our course is is through a system that actually rewards the the learning and to a large extent regurgitating not just knowledge but particular ways of expressing that knowledge and there has to be a way of of, of allocating students to, to programs but it's completely understandable if students are then rather thrown by a system that says you've done really well at these skills so you get a place on this program and the moment they come to this program we don't want those skills all the things that you've been rewarded for doing we're effectively going to punish you for and say so you've got to start again so <laughs> i think you know and again it's tempting them to say oh just change you know your first meeting with your students you go right you've got to change everything and that just leads to understandable panic uh, and again that sense of being overwhelmed so we've got to have this greater understanding i think um across institutions not just in our wonderful education schools but across institutions of what our students are coming to us with what is their experience what are their skills and it's not to say those skills are worthless but it's to say right those are the skills you've got how do we build on those how do we hold your hands to get you to the point that we think is important as a graduate um, of, of a university? And that's very different from saying, let's carry on um, with what you might find comfortable, the, the spoon feeding of information and, and uh, rewarding you for, for churning it back out again. But it's also very far from just saying, you're on your own. We managed, you'll manage, see you at the other end. If you really can't cope, we'll pick up the pieces. And, and it's that middle ground, that, that recognition, that celebration of what people can do, but the recognition that things are different and we owe it to our students to respond to that and be constructive educators with the material that we get. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I often say, you know, I can understand students if you've been really aced at navigating that system and you know sometimes playing that system to the best mm -hmm. you know, possible you know to best of your abilities and then suddenly you arrive in a new system where they just say yeah, welcome to critical independent thinking and, yes. and you know um I, if i've been good at playing a particular game I'd say, no, sorry, you're not changing the, the rules of the game now. Yeah. I, I want to continue playing that way. So, but I, I think all that for me, all those conversations, like you were sort of saying about honesty, I think all those conversations need to be, we need, we, we should be having those conversations um, yes. openly so we can we can you know there, there's clarity and then we can sort of see what what can change i guess yeah i think that's it it's the clarity of communications with our students and not the sitting down and saying you must change but that the communication is almost internally with us so that we are then in a position to support students without sort of saying we are supporting you because you can't do this it's actually creating it's that embedding of a system where those skills are developed not necessarily ex even explicitly sometimes sometimes just implicitly so that students 
And in some ways, you know, you've you've succeeded if a student says, oh, I didn't know that. And I've worked out how to do it. And 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 look, I can do it now. And I did it all on my own. And the temptation go, yeah, but actually I helped you through that. But actually the best educators are the ones where those that skill building is is actually built in so the students are doing it for themselves but they're doing it within a structure that's been built with those things in mind so that honesty and and so and again the honesty doesn't come with saying to students well sometimes you have to say to students you can't have everything but it's not so much saying to students you know poor us we're overworked to stop complaining it's conversations again internally about okay this is the problem perhaps community, we've communicated with students and they think this is a possible solution. What, what do we think about that? Uh, and what's the consequence of that? And those internal discussions about if that is what you want to do, what is the consequence of that further down the line? Um, and then that bravery of going back and saying, this is possible, this is not, or this is possible, but only if this changes as well. And those are the difficult decisions, particularly I think with this um, focus on sort of surveys and, and satisfaction and ratings and that sense of, well, you need to keep your customers happy um, because if they're not happy, that impacts on you and that your scores go down and so on and so forth. But actually, education isn't about happiness. We, it, it is about well-being. It's about we would obviously want people to be largely content with their education, but it's not about happiness it's not our responsibility to make our students happy um even if on a personal level we're obviously delighted when they are yes agree and and actually possibly because education is about lifelong learning and and when you start learning something new i always have this you know the 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 square of that unconscious incompetence so you don't know what you don't know and then you move to conscious incompetence to you know conscious competence so like you know when you learn to drive you go through those and then you go to the uh, you know real con you know in in conscious competence so you know if we learn about driving you don't know what you don't know before you you start driving a car and then you move to oh my goodness like how do I move like change gears press all those pedals you know conscious incompetence to moving to okay conscious competence where I know how to drive but actually my friends can't talk in the back at the same time or the radio can't play to actually driving for miles thinking oh my god who's driven this car because I can't remember driving it um and and I often use that example with my with the students because when we step into a new topic and learning, there's, there'll always be things that we don't know, that we don't understand and grasp, right? But you were talking about uncertainty and not knowing. When you step into that, first of all, that conscious incompetence, you realize how much you don't know and how much there is to learn, but also you know, you, you, you become aware of how much of a gap you've got a bridge before you can get to a level that is the expected level. Yeah. And that's that's a scary place, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it's it's similar sort of ideas to that sort of that liminal state and transition. It's it's deeply uncomfortable and we can seek to run away or we can seek to blame other people for our discomfort. And those are really 
natural consequences, but we're unlikely to be happy while we're in that position. Um, and I think that's, and I think as, you know, as academics, particularly on the education side, we're often people pleasers. So we don't actually like to see people in that position either. We find it uncomfortable. And so we sometimes need to remember to step back and, and to allow our students to feel this discomfort and to feel sometimes this anger or irritation or disappointment. Um, not to set out to create it. <laughs> That's not really what I mean by embedding well-being in the curriculum, but to actually accept this is a, a stage of, of learning. Um, so yeah, I think I'm probably guilty of that to a great extent as well, wanting to rush people through that that state. Yes, and I think as parents we are as well, right? Ooh. We don't want our children to experience that uncomfortableness. We don't like it. Yeah. So. Um, and again, I think this is something that maybe is not discussed enough um, together with the that the word uncertainty. So you were saying earlier on that when, you know, I, I arrived in the UK and you know one, I rocked up, you know, sort of landed at Bristol Airport, got in a taxi, could not understand the taxi driver because he had a really strong Bristolian accent and I really struggled. Um, you know, talk about throwing yourself out of the deep end in the pool yeah. and it's like, you know, sink and swim. So it was really uncomfortable, but, but you know, I, it, it's made me the person I am now. So, you know, all those challenges are, they're not comfortable, but they're actually, you know, free challenges for adversity is, is how we grow and develop. Um, yeah. and, and to me, that uncertainty, you know, the, if we have a curriculum, which I see you know, with, with my, my son in secondary school, if you start saying to young people, there's one answer, it's at the back of the book, and this is how you answer this and that, then we are, are we not sending a message to young people that there is a certain way, a certain, you know, and, and that goes completely against the notion of change and uncertainty, which is the only constant. I, I, I do recall being, well, both appalled and enlightened when when my child came back from school to say they'd got a very good mark on a on a, a mock assessment and the, and the teacher had effectively said yes, yes. So those passages, so memorize those passages and, and put those into any question on that topic. And that is kind of an appalled moment in terms of what the learning message that was going on, but also this absolute enlightenment about how my my students at university were approaching things because this is what they had been taught to do. You've said this thing well once, so you learn it, you memorize it, and you pop it in whenever it could possibly be relevant without actually engaging with the, the, the educational endeavor in which you're supposed to be thinking and, and creating. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's, if that is what you are taught to do and you are taught there is an answer, there is a right way of doing things, then of course that's going to colour how you approach everything else. And, and when you're told that isn't the case, then you are both told that everything you've learned is effectively wrong and your skills are invalid, but you're also left in this horrible state of what you thought was, was, was clarity, you're now having to embrace uncertainty. Um, and, and uncertainty in a world when, you know, if you've got your phone with you, you can pretty much find out anything and contact anyone at any time. Um, so uncertainty isn't sort of something that we're really familiar with anymore. No, that's it. 
and we know you know from our research that for example there is a really massive link between uncertainty and tolerance so Duga's work in in Canada and uh, generalized anxiety disorder mm -hmm. so people who suffer from generalized anxiety disorder tend to have uh, a higher intolerance to uncertainty um, of huge correlations so well, that makes a lot of sense doesn't it <laughs> yeah absolutely so that leads me to then the next little bit like little step where you know we're talking about the system but we we're also talking about the individual and a lot of the time when i talk about flourishing education and you know having a system where flourishing so i always say flourishing education means flourishing students and flourishing staff and i'd argue flourishing parents but you know that's uh, brackets um so all actors in the system flourishing but a lot of the pushback that I get or it's almost like the elephant in the rooms so that I always address it first because it, if you address it you know then you can move forward is this notion of yes but you know what sort out the system and then I'll be fine so actually I'd I the individual be it you know the student or or the staff i don't need to deal with any of this and i don't have to do anything if you make and change my environment then i'll be fine yeah well we're losing sight of the interconnectivity again aren't we <laughs> so that's i think it's easy isn't it if we if we if we recognize there are problems with the system then it's easy then to, to blame the system entirely but we can't move away from personal responsibility and that, and i don't think a systemic approach by any means removes the individual from the equation. Ultimately, the individual takes responsibility for what they do and how they respond to things. But that's also not to say that it's all down to the individual, because otherwise we're back on that ad hoc. But we'll just, you know, we'll deal with you if we have to, but otherwise just keep going. It's about that. I, mean, I, th I think you put it beautifully when we were talking before and it went into the blog that it's not yes you need personal responsibility but then the system is what creates that response ability the ability for people to respond appropriately in different situations or indeed can can damage that ability to respond appropriately to certain circumstances so it, it's that that dual thing and it's interesting that you find you have found the pushback has been largely to sort of to blame the system Whereas quite often the conversations I have are the other direction and to say the problem lies with the individual. If, if, if people would simply take individual responsibility and just crack on with things, it would all be OK. You know, everything's it, we did it. Why can't they or those people are managing? Why can't you? And, and so clearly that pushback can come from different directions, possibly according to individual circumstances and experiences. Um, but yeah, they, they've got to both have. Um, flaws in the argument haven't they because the two things interlink yes it's that it's not a an either or it's an and right it's it's and and you we, we, we we're talking about individuals but it, because i'm a linguist and and i've had to learn english the hard way okay <laughs> um i i i like to to look at what's what the the the, the social um context how that takes the the meaning of a specific word and and all of that um you know uh, and the social construct so one of the thing i often ask my students when they write uh, to me and they say 
the university said. So, you know, the, the, the problem with using words like this, the university, the institution, okay? What does that mean? When we say the university, what do we mean? Do we talk about the buildings that the university owns where we teach? Are we talking about senior management? Are we talking about you and I who are academics? Are we talking about professional teams, you know, like people in admin teams? You know, are we talking about the, the, the student body, the undergrads, the postgrads, both, all of those things? And the, the issue with those great big general terminology like you know this the 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 institution or the university is that we can hide behind that right i'm feeling guilty as you say this fabienne <laughs> because I, I i know i do it too we all do it right it, 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 we yeah. all do because i i think what it means when students use it or when we use it is it's actually things beyond our control isn't it it's that sense of others whoever those others are are doing things and at this level i can't change them i don't like it but this is what it is and and perhaps that's part of the problem is that sense of that lack of agency that lack of control that lack of um of connectivity in both directions if you like that sense that things are being done to us and we're unhappy whether it's students or staff or or schools or faculties it, it's that sense of of the other is the university even though as you point out we're, we are all the university yeah and and for me i often i often say and it links back to why i do flourishing education on top of everything else is because i really believe in you know the be the change you want to see in the world mm -hmm. and so if i am flourishing then this you know and you are flourishing and you know somebody else is flourishing overall the system is more likely to be flourishing than if i'm languishing you're languishing and everybody else is languishing um yeah i mean i don't know whether that that makes sense so it's like we make each of each one of us like you're talking about interconnectivity is we are part of the system we are the system and it's really interesting because i think that again that's a sense of personal responsibility isn't it that we have a responsibility to ourselves to 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 try and get things right and, and on a personal level you know i was very much brought up to be selfless that is how i would want to be and it, and it kind of it infiltrates every part of my being and everything I do and the problem with that kind of sort of extreme selfless approach is that it's easy then to expect the same of others and to impose too many pressures on others and to put too many pressures on yourself so that rather than putting your own face mask on first or the oxygen mask on first you are so busy putting the oxygen on everyone else that actually you're going to be no use in the end and and that is an interesting sense of where there's almost a responsibility to be selfish but I think that's possibly where the the, the pushback is coming from from your talks as you were saying that when you say about flourishing education is both flourishing students and flourishing staff I think the automatic response to that in the same way if we put it in an institutional level as staff might feel if told to be thinking about senior management is that sense of 
how dare you be talking about yourself when things are so bad down here? And, and it's, I think what's really important in the work we've been doing in, in, with a systemic approach is to recognize that actually this isn't about selfishness. It's about saying we cannot achieve what we need to down there for the want of a better word without making sure everything is better throughout. And, and I think that really helps as well with that kind of the, the extreme selfless attitude is you're going, well, actually, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm actually doing this in a roundabout way to achieve the goals for other people. And I, I think that's quite a powerful message that the whole well-being of students needs this flourishing institution because otherwise the things we're doing, they might be temporarily successful, but they won't last and they won't have the ongoing change that I think most people want to see. Yes, and and if anything else, if you look at the cost it has on the economy as a whole anyway, you know, is is just like why not why not want to do this, right? Because it's costing billions to yeah. an economy and 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 there's loads of you know people who are really either languishing or really having you know yeah. difficulties and I think that's we really we want well students well students learn well they come out as well adjusted successful members of society which is what the government wants from an economic perspective even if it might not be quite where we would put our focus um but to have well students we need a well institution and and that brings us back to that sense of while it's not about telling students to worry about us or to care about us because we are not their problem it is about internally in institutions and across institutions thinking about what impact particular approaches have more generally because it's only that way that we're going to have truly embedded well-being um, with a, a bright future so what do you think is the smallest step we can take towards that flourishing education and that the embedding of well-being for all and you know this of this real yeah i think in the same i think in the same way that we have moved when thinking about embedding uh, we've moved from thinking in terms of student well-being from kind of this ad hoc well-being support so crisis management on an individual level to embedding it um, through the system, through what we do, through how we teach, through what we teach. I think in the same way, I think that the kind of the starting point is to approach this with the simple method of, of again, not compartmentalizing things, but bringing them back together. So rather than having completely separate notions of student experience, student education, personnel, staff well-being, there needs to be the sense of, well, actually, if you are making this change in education, if you're making this change in the student experience, what is the impact? There needs to be much more cross-fertilization within institutions and across institutions about what's happening and what the consequence of that is. And only, by, only in that way can we actually evaluate the costs um, and think about what is achievable and if it's not achievable, what needs to be done instead? 
um, if we accept something has to be done and that's not possible, then how do we deal with that? Is it honesty and saying we can't do that? Is it saying we can't do that, but we can do this? Or is it saying this is essential and it has this cost, so we need to resource that in some other way? And that's difficult because we can only process enormous institutions and enormous systems by compartmentalizing to some extent, but we need to make these connections just as we've started to make those connections in student well-being we need to now expand that and have those conversations yes and like having conversations like we are having and you know one conversation at a time and and possibly moving from the reactive to the proactive like you're describing so when we in reactive mode and like fight flight then you're you're in your fear and the threat system and you can't create in in the fear and the threat system in the same way that you can if you're if you're you know like Gilbert uses the soothing system you know the uh, using your your prefrontal cortex and you know you you were talking about authentic learning or you know compassion compassion in the curriculum all of those things they all come from two completely different systems right one is yeah. soothing and one is threat system um do you i mean do you think that that's true yes it's about i mean the conversations are so important aren't they but it's making sure you have the conversations with 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 people that can do things about it the people who are ready to listen and then you have this problem as, as you were hinting at there that actually we're at a point where there is a, a real sense of crisis growing within the academy on the staff side as well as in the student side and that feeling of being overwhelmed and that inability to cope with new things and so whenever you're dealing with things even if you are looking to solve a problem if it's going to involve change then that is also threatening to people who are struggling people who are overwhelmed and it is it's a worrying time there are lots of people i know who are very sad who are very unhappy um, and, and it's not because life isn't perfect it's because they don't feel able to do the job they want to do that they have been sort of squeezed too far um, not necessarily any kind of consciousness to that but so we've got to try and find a space where we can have these conversations where we can make changes without imposing further pressures on people whether it's staff or students who are already significantly overwhelmed it's, we can't just go back to the way things were and because this isn't all about covid anyway um, i think we're already moving in this direction this has just exacerbated it um, but we, we can't ignore where we are we have to think about where we want to go from here um, so it's then yeah making sure we do that in as supportive a way as possible in that hand holding just as we handhold students we need to handhold staff, colleagues, institutions in, in making the changes that might need to be made and having those honest conversations, being open, being clear. It was interesting very recently, wasn't it? A, a few universities have come out and explicitly said, we will not be going back to um, in-person teaching. And, and that's what's been the headline because they are the first ones to put their heads above the parapet and to say what probably an awful lot of people are suspecting already but it's not a popular 
expression and and that's true with so much of what we're saying in, in academia that yes we know you want that and we would love that too but it can't happen but we don't want to be the first people to say that in fact we'd rather if no one ever said it <laughs> yeah and to some extent having this conversation and i don't know about you but writing the blog um on a topic that can be sensitive and quite be you know quite quite be can be challenging um feels a little bit like you're putting your head above the parapet by saying we need to talk about this let's talk about this yeah i think that's right but i i don't think i don't feel that there's anything controversial in saying look this is happening and it seems like there might be a better way of approaching things or a different way of approaching things. It's worth having a conversation about whether things could be different and to think whether it could improve things. And I think particularly if done absolutely with no sense of criticism, because I think we are where we are because of everybody has the best of motives. As I said, we've said throughout, no one is suggesting anybody is being dishonest or hiding things or keeping things from anybody or trying to, to pressure um, staff or not liking students. It, it's not about that. It's about saying, are we genuinely satisfied with where we are in education? And if we're not, what might we do to make that better? And I don't think for a minute that we have all the answers um, and we certainly don't have the power to make big changes, but these conversations can be powerful. Those little voices and, as you say, um, modelling the change that you want to be um, can make a difference. I love that and I feel that's such a beautiful way to end what we've just talked about. Um, when I when, to finish the podcast, I always ask my guests, um, you know, what would be the one or two things that you would want our listeners to take away from our conversation and sort of think about? Oh, that's that's a fun one. I, I think probably my my sort of key things that I would want to focus on is that that need to accept. The people we are dealing with whether that's our students or our colleagues as they are not to criticize for where people are and to wish things were different but to say right we are where we are this is the background this is the context how do we move forward from here um, and while my focus has been on students generally in that context i think it applies also for, for staff in the institution and then i think combined with that is that honesty is to say this is what is possible these are our ways through it and and this is what we might do about it let's talk Let, let's let's make progress so i think that's it that's acceptance of people's position and working with that rather than against it and honesty and the bravery that comes with that thank you so much imogen i could speak to you forever <laughs> as always it is just so lovely and I love the conversations we have because to me it really feels uh, you know like writing the blog we have this conversation they are little contributions really tiny little contributions but that hopefully are moving us in the right direction like you're saying you know for me it's no blame no shame 
and really yeah where are we and where do we want to go and yeah and that's it yeah so thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you fabian i'll know that speak to you very soon again brilliant Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much. And I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.